Well, you've sung well today for a greatly depleted congregation. Trust that the Lord will give our traveling folks to return and also give them rest. I've thought often, even in some of the summer months, about speaking on some of those passages that deal with rest and even the Lord calling the disciples aside for a little season. Uh, But that's not today. Uh, Turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1, I want to break into the chapter and start our reading in verse 7. It's a portion, as you know, that we looked at last fall in some detail, Um, and I've mentioned it in this current series in the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. Uh, While I'm doing my introduction now, thinking a little bit of not preaching on it since we've touched on it before, Uh, but as you see, we're here. So today from verse 7 in Revelation 1, let us read together. Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Well, amen. We'll end our reading, again trusting the Lord to prosper the public reading of His inspired Word. Let's do with the Word open and read in our hearing, bow our heads and hearts once again together. Heavenly Father, we come today 
grateful as we have read together Your Word that we're not following cunningly devised fables. We're not here to gather some wisdom from this preacher. We're gathered under the Word that You have given and preserved. Lord, that firm foundation, think of that phrase You've put before us, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Lord, in such troubled times, for us in this nation, even times in which things that have been secure our whole lifetimes seem to be shaking, Lord, we ask for the overwhelming confidence that we're citizens of a, a kingdom that can't be shaken. You have translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Your dear Son. And so we come today asking that You will give us something from that kingdom to help us in our pilgrim journeys here. So prosper Your Word and prosper each of us individually under the Word as we consider it together today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, these last Lord's Days since Easter, we've been looking at the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. And many commentators and study Bibles include John's vision of Christ in chapter 1 with those post-resurrection appearances. I have a nice mimeographed... Oh, did that word come out? That's an old word. Uh, I have a nice copy uh, of a page from a very old study Bible that lists those post-resurrection appearances in my files. I have referenced this appearance to John among those appearances in the past and handled it that way before. There are, though, I think, certain reasons to look at this vision, this appearance of Christ differently. First, Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, we've referenced that passage several times along the way in our study. He goes through and just kind of bullet points several of those post-resurrection appearances as evidences of the resurrection of Christ. And he uses the phrase, last of all, He appeared unto me also, as one born out of due time. And so Paul references the one we looked at last time where he was converted at the sight of Christ as the last of these. And then you've got the whole matter of time. Paul's conversion was in the mid-30s. I was writing my notes and even in my head just now, I almost prefaced that with 1930s. That wouldn't have been right. It was like the double off 30s. Um, but that appearance was very near in time to the previous post-resurrection appearances, not very far removed from the ascension of Christ to glory. The one we've read of today is six decades beyond that in the mid-90s of that first century. And so that whole matter of time is involved. This vision comes, I say, six decades later. For those reasons, and given that in the fall of last year we looked at this vision really phrase by phrase in that description of Christ that's here, I had thought perhaps to complete our series with Saul's conversion and leave this one for, well, we've already considered it. But yet, in many ways, as I thought of it over the weeks, and I looked at it, and for the very same reasons we've just suggested that it's a little distinct 
from those other post-resurrection appearances, I thought for those very same reasons it might be good for us to look at this vision again. Because in some ways, this is a post-resurrection appearance of Christ. That's for us. It's one that's given to the Apostle late in those days of the apostolic era in this closing book of the canon for us to see ourselves, for us to review ourselves, for us to take as challenge and as comfort ourselves. In some ways, this is the post-resurrection appearance that's meant for us. This is how we're to view the risen and ascended Christ. This is how He presented Himself to the churches that are described for us in chapters 2 and 3. So I want to return to this vision today, not as we did last fall, in looking at all of the descriptions and considering their meaning for us, but rather more devotionally to consider this side of Christ that's given to John, that's given to be written, and to given to the churches. Three things that I would suggest to you as we meditate upon it today. The first one is this, that as we consider the context of this vision, we see when, where, and how it came to us as it came to John, that it puts before us a reminder that we live in what we might call an unknown providence. We don't know the things that will necessarily befall us. We talked as we considered this vision and began to go into its details a lot at that point about John himself being in exile. He's not enjoying the comforts of some monastic life there on Patmos. He's probably in a labor camp. He's an old guy out there banging rocks with the younger guys. But the Lord met with him. The Lord drew near. What were his thoughts? What were his meditations as he is witness and vitally a part of the experience of the churches those several decades now into the second generation of the New Testament church? You think about these understandings of what God is doing and maybe we could say understanding the things we don't know. I'm calling this thought an unknown providence. I'm sure you have similar memories as myself of particular points in time in school uh, when a teacher really got your attention. Well, I remember once Dr. Panosian, you've met here, most of you have. He's spoken for us. He's with the Lord now. But, well, that was a voice that could get your attention anytime he wanted. But one of the times that he just paused, he'd used the word providence in his lecture. And he said, let's stop and consider that. And he wrote on the board, well, our word providence is from the Latin. And if you put a couple of the parts of it together, pro, meaning before, and then video. Video. It's kind of like the additional part to the audio. Audio and video. It's to see. Well, providence is to see before. And yet, if we understand it doctrinally and with reference to our God, it's really even more than that. Providence is one of those words that kind of gets fixed in the usage of the church, but 
there might have been a better word. God's providence, the way we use it, is more than just seeing before. He's foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. He doesn't just know, He's ordains. Well, what God has ordained, what His providence holds for us, I suggest to you, is unknown. We've a couple times in this study of the post-resurrection appearances looked at and even used the, the term curiosity. Remember John 21, that beautiful passage of His having that morning meal there with the disciples by the Sea of Galilee and His conversation with Peter, that restoration of Peter to apostolic office. He predicts that Peter will die a martyr's death. What mercy we saw even in that. This man that boasted that everybody else will deny you, but never me. And of course, he denied him with cursings. He's fearful and weak in the flesh. But later, by the Spirit, he will have the courage to own his Lord and even die for his Lord. But after he receives that, Word, he turns and John is walking behind them and he says, Lord, what will this man do? And the Lord doesn't answer him except to say, what if I will that he tarry till I come? What's that to you? Follow me. Of course, we know that's the source of the rumor that the Apostle John wouldn't die before the Lord returned and John wrote that to dispel that. He said, that's not what the Lord said. The Lord said, what if I will that he tarry till I come? And you think about Acts 1, we saw there another curiosity. Lord, will Thou at this time restore the kingdom unto Israel? This is after those 40 days of post-resurrection instruction, things pertaining to the kingdom of God. But what's the Lord saying? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which God has in His own power. They're pieces of our pilgrimage that God has been pleased not to reveal unto us. We all face an unknown providence. And you think by this stage in the New Testament church, as John there is in exile on Patmos, what has transpired? What is true of the Lord's people? You think about the strength and the evangelistic work of say, the church at Thessalonica. Think of the struggles, the sins, and yet the victories of the church at Corinth. You think of the strivings. I've always marveled at that opening chapter of Philippians where Paul talks about people preaching Christ and all of the bad motives and bad heart that was part of that. And he said, I'm still rejoicing because Christ is being preached. See, personal ambition, pride mingled in with ministry. Wow. What so surprised me as a young person to read, a little knowledge of the flesh and of self and of church history. Yeah. That's a piece of the church, is it not? You think about the testimony of the Romans. Their faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. 
Think of the warnings and the presence of false teachers that are already there as we saw last year in the letters to the churches that follow. All of those are pieces of what the church that early on was experiencing. I think in many ways those seven letters, that number of completion, is that survey of well, what we will see throughout the history of the church. We have, I say, an unknown providence. It's kind of like we've commented often on Hebrews chapter 11. That roll call of faith. And you see all those heroes in some cases, lesser known saints in other cases. And all their circumstances were not the same. Some saw great blessing. The Red Sea parted. Some were sawn asunder. But they all by faith were given the help they needed to go through the unknown providences that God would put before them. Well, welcome to reality. That's where we are. If you ask me what at the first days of my ministry I would have expected and thought to see in the church, in the world, in our nation, I may not be as surprised with things that have happened in the church in the last quarter century. I'm stunned at what things have happened in our nation and in the world. We may see, you think through the little brief survey of the different churches, the epistles, the New Testament we've referenced, we could see any or all of these in our lifetime. I will say this, in my youth, Perhaps it's still true. I haven't been sitting under other preachers for a long time. I've been preaching. But I know many of you could say what my wife and I experienced and others have. Some with their eschatological expectations saying, well, the Lord will will take us out of here before things get really bad. I remember hearing that as a young person as an American evangelical Christian, and thinking, how do you know that? What about Christians throughout the rest of church history? What about Christians in other countries right now? We are never going to have to worry about any trouble. We all face an unknown providence. That's why it behooves us to know our God, the one who doesn't change, that we might be better equipped with his presence and a knowledge of his word to deal with the unknown things that he would have for us. Be ye also ready, as our Lord said. Well, we didn't 
and haven't gone through the different pieces of the vision here today. But how good to know something of that Christ when the unknown providences come upon us. The second thought I'd share with you from this vision is this. That we live constantly with an unseen presence. Here's where we could perhaps go through the attributes of the vision. You see that description of Christ that is so odd if you were to try and, well, as artists have done, to to paint it or put it in, say, a prophecy study booklet or some slides or PowerPoint, excuse me. But this vision of Christ, it pulls back the veil, this unseen presence. This vision, I say, pulls back the veil for a moment to give us a glimpse of the risen Christ who is mindful of us during these days of our pilgrim journey. And I think if you consider what is put before us here in this vision, that it comes at us or comes to us from different directions. We can think of the comforts that it affords us. And that's with reference to the ungodly. Perhaps those that might perpetrate hardships upon us, the Lord's people. And just listen with me, if you would, to a couple passages. The opening verse that we read here, verse 7 in chapter 1. It says, Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, Amen. If you want to turn over to chapter 6, chapter 6, very briefly, from verse 15. We read here of something of that future day. The kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains, the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains and said, <clears throat> and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him that sitteth on the throne. And from, there's one of the most striking phrases to me of the book of Revelation. And from the wrath of the Lamb... For the great day of His wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? I say this affords comfort to us, because if you look at this, and I don't want to follow this thought, I just put it out there. But what's the description of the world, of the chief men of the world, of the kings and princes of the world, at the coming of Christ? They mourn or they wail at His coming. They come with fear, as we read in chapter 6, at His approach, and they'd rather have the mountains crush them than to endure the wrath of this approaching Lamb. And I say, I just put this thought out there. Here's, here's something to think about with regard to our questions about the millennium. This is a description of the character of the earth and of the leaders of the earth at His coming. They don't want Him here. They've been happy enough without Him building their own kingdom. And His approach causes them to fear and mourn. You think of that with regard to the condition of the world at the advent. You didn't catch my 
insinuation there, I think that would it's a difficulty to reconcile with the post-millennial view among others. But we debate these things. But think about that with regard to us. It's people that haven't wanted His presence. They don't want our presence. Because we walk with Him. We represent. troubles they may bring, such as the exile that John is experiencing, to see this Christ, to understand Him as He's revealed here before us, is a comfort that He's on the throne. He's not unmindful of what's happening here. He will deal with those that deny Him. He'll deal with those that persecute His people. And think about that phrase we saw last time in His appearance to Paul or to Saul of Tarsus. Why are you persecuting me? It's like we're told in the Old Testament. The one that touches God's people touches the apple of His eye. And so this unseen presence, and yet we were given this vision of Christ on the throne preparing to return, it comforts us to know His sovereign power and His control. But it also speaks to us with regard to correction. Remember how the letters to the churches we looked at last fall and winter, each included a, a portion from this vision in the description of Christ that was put in the letter to each church. There was a great application of those particular attributes to the particular strengths and weaknesses of those churches, was there not? And so this unseen presence, and yet this, this side of Christ that we're given to see behind the veil for a little bit, is one that would challenge us then that we might walk worthy that we might be mindful of Him and of His truth and of His law. You think about the condition of the churches. You think about what had come in. The false teachers, most notably in those letters. And this is where I just put to you something we, a couple years ago in our little survey of Daniel, tried to underscore for these perplexing days. That we need a calmness and a resolve to understand and apply truth, gospel truth, in these days. I think about the many times in the history of the Lord's people where the Lord's people have wandered from Him, they've gone into apostasy as a result of their sinfulness, the powers of the world are advanced. The influence of the ungodly is strengthened. And even you come to the point where Gentile empires emerge and they're threatening God's people to, to carry them away. And we see those different seasons. We see the time where the ten northern tribes are carried into captivity and Judah's rescued. Remarkably rescued. 
undeservedly rescued. And then we see later where another Gentile empire comes and Judah, rather than being humbled, rather than listening to God's prophets, Jeremiah in particular, what do they do? They, they contact the Egyptians. You know, why don't you guys help us out here against the Babylonians? And I wonder how many times, and you see it in Scripture, you can see it in church history, that the Lord's people, when there's, when there's trouble on the horizon, they will enter into false and wrong alliances trying to ward off a time of trouble that God has ordained. I think about that in our modern context. You look at the political strife. You look at the morals that are mingled in with a lot of the political and social upheaval of our times. Just remind you, just because someone's on the same side of a moral issue as we would be, doesn't mean they're our brother. It doesn't mean they understand and believe the Gospel. If we focus more on that individual political or even moral issue than we do the Gospel, then we can get off track. We can enter into false alliances trying to ward off something God has ordained. Let the doctrine of justification and all the details of that doctrine in Scripture, the person and work of Christ, let that be our touchstone of truth as we look at the issues of our times. None of those issues is more important than the Gospel. An unseen presence. One that challenges us to be faithful. And one that comforts us to know that our Christ is on the throne. None of this escapes His knowledge and His purpose. Well, not only... In this opening chapter of Revelation, are we given to consider an unknown providence and an unseen presence? I submit to you lastly that we also find an unfailing promise. If you read again verses 17 and 18 with me, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am He that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Think about just the bullet points of that statement to John when he tells him, he lays his hand on him and says, don't be afraid. He says, first, I am the first and the last. The echo of the same words and then that familiar title, the Alpha and Omega from previous verses. 
Here we're reminded that our Savior is the Creator and the Sustainer of all things. He is working all things together after the counsel of His own will. And so again, why would we tremble when He's on the throne? But it says also that He is the one that lives and was dead and is alive forevermore. Jesus is, was, would have been, will be, just multiply all the tenses we can get, the first and the last forever. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. The eternal triune God, the same yesterday and today and forever. The second person of that Trinity entered into time. We don't have the equipment even to work through that. But we say it often, He, he took into union with Himself our nature. Two distinct natures in one person forever the mystery and miracle of the incarnation of Jesus. He's the one that was alive, was dead, and is alive forevermore. Why did He do that? Why did He enter into history? Why is there this outworking of a purpose in history? Well, that purpose is redemption. It's to save His people from their sins. It's to call them out of this cursed world. Now why? Maybe I'm supposed to read Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress again at some point here because I've been constantly reminded of late of his choice of the title and the allegory, the city of destruction. And Christian is awakened to the fact that that's where he's living. Those are the circumstances He's born under. He needs to get out of there. That's what Jesus has done. He's calling a people out of there. Here is the unfailing promise. He's going to return. He'll come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not His Gospel. He will have called out a people from every tribe and tongue and kindred that won't be part of that destruction. That won't be part of that body that are cast from His presence into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. No, He is the Redeemer. He's the one that lives but was dead. Why was he dead? To destroy death. But then he's described, he describes himself as having the keys of hell and of death. Having the keys. Can John not be moved in his own memory? 
hear the words in one of those previous post-resurrection appearances. Jesus said, All power, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His Christ. But he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Because all power and authority hasn't been given to the rulers and the kings of this earth. All power and authority has been given to our Jesus. And there is an unfailing promise that He will come again and receive us unto Himself. That where He is, and again remember, where is He? He's in the immediate presence of God. He's at God's right hand. He's taken the seat that was originally ordained for us. And we lost by sinful rebellion. He's regained by sovereign redemption. And all those that take counsel against Him, and whatever that hatred of Him brings alongside of it, You see things in the world today almost inexplicable. There's no logical benefit to this course of action. You see it everywhere. What can be underneath it? Ultimately, a hatred of God. A hatred of law The earth is described in the last days. One of its characteristics is lawlessness and violence. Well, one of these things may threaten to pull away from our security, our comforts. We have an unfailing promise. He knows. He's on the throne. And even if we would be like James, the brother of John, that we read of today that Herod slew with a sword, we'll be like John. We've often thought about those two bow energies, those two sons of thunder. One was the first to seal his testimony with his blood of the twelve. And the other was the last. There's an unknown providence. If you read that chapter, that's a wonderful little chapter in Acts. It opens with all those threatenings and real tragedy that came upon the church. And it ends with Herod answering to God. And it ends with the Word being magnified going further into the world with success. Well, as I said, this vision of Christ in Revelation 1 perhaps is more of a vision than a post-resurrection appearance likened unto the others. But yet I think it's one for us to see our Christ in this way. 
and to be helped then for all the unknowns that face us there's an unfailing promise we know the end of the story may God give us grace then to walk by faith in the one that will work that end out himself let's bow our heads together Lord, we pray that You will grant us grace today. It's easy to read this vision and some of those strange descriptions. Swords coming out of a mouth. and A voice like the sound of many waters. Feet like the brass. But yet in all of these, do we not see something the majesty and the sovereign power of our Christ. Help us. Lord, we, we still live with great comforts and security. But these things are fragile. They're not guaranteed. Help us in uncertain days to rest on eternal certainties and to walk faithfully with those eternal truths as bedrock to our souls and not to be cast here and there with every wind of doctrine because we're worried about the stuff that's going on that we don't understand. Give us to look above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Prosper this sight of Christ to us today we ask in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.